You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 243, Relieving Gibraltar. After Spain's entry into the war with Britain in 1779, British leaders had to contend with the threat of a combined French and Spanish fleet right in their own backyard. It was only by luck that they avoided a full-scale invasion of Britain that year. The combined French and Spanish fleets continued to pose a grave threat to Britain. One of the main reasons that Spain entered the war was to regain possession of several territories that had had lost to Britain in earlier wars. These included Menorca in the Mediterranean, the Floridas in the West Indies, but probably the most galling for Spain was the British possession of Gibraltar, a mountainous region at the southern tip of Spain itself. Britain used control of Gibraltar to regulate the movement of ships in and out of the Mediterranean. Britain, in cooperation with the Dutch, had first captured Gibraltar in 1704 during the War of Spanish Succession. It was a highly defensible position, having a castle built atop a rocky mountain, first fortified by the Moors a thousand years earlier. Spain had regularly besieged Gibraltar many times during the Middle Ages, finally taking the castle. So they had controlled Gibraltar for several hundred years before losing it to Britain. In 1713, the Treaty of Utrecht gave Gibraltar to Britain, but the Spanish were never really happy about an enemy country holding valuable real estate in what they regarded as part of mainland Spain. During the next Anglo-Spanish War in 1727, Spain launched an all-out attempt to dislodge the British but were once again unsuccessful. Following that war, Spain built a line of fortifications around Gibraltar, cutting it off from the rest of mainland Spain. During the War of Jenkins' Ear in 1739, the Spanish once again attempted to take back Gibraltar, but once again the British defenses held. When Spain signed the Treaty of Aranjuez in 1779 with France, making its entry into the latest war with Britain, the first stated goal in that treaty was to take back Gibraltar once and for all. France agreed that it would not end the war until Spain took back Gibraltar. As I said, for the prior half-century, Spain had used its army to cut off all access from Gibraltar to the rest of Spain to the north. But the dominance of the British Navy allowed Britain to resupply Gibraltar by sea, just as they did many of their island colonies. The British left a relatively large garrison of regulars at Gibraltar, even in peacetime. More than 5,000 regulars occupied the rock before the war began. That was more than 10% of the entire British army worldwide. When the war in America began, George III 
who was also Elector of Hanover, deployed several regiments of Hanoverian soldiers to Gibraltar in order to free up British regulars for America, but without reducing the overall garrison numbers at Gibraltar. After Spain formed its alliance with France in April of 1779, it began its latest siege of Gibraltar in June. Britain could still get its faster military ships past the naval blockade, but the larger and slower supply ships had a lot of trouble getting to Gibraltar. Spain deployed about 14,000 soldiers on the land north of Gibraltar, but even with these superior numbers, Spain did not dare attack the British fortifications. They knew from experience that the terrain greatly favored the defenders. The British had built up those fortifications, making use of centuries-old defenses atop the Rock of Gibraltar, which rose more than a quarter mile above the ground, and defended all possible passages to the top with well-placed artillery. For Spain to take back Gibraltar, it would have to cut off all support from the sea. To that end, Spain deployed Admiral Juan de Langara. The admiral came from a prominent family from the Basque region of Spain. His father had also been an admiral. Langara entered his father's profession at age 14, when he was commissioned in Ensign in 1750. He had spent a quarter century proving his capabilities as a naval officer and slowly rising in rank through the Seven Years' War, and afterwards leading several naval expeditions around the world, including three trips to the Philippines. Langara was part of the invasion fleet that the French and Spanish deployed against Britain in the spring of 1779. Langara managed to capture the British ship Winchcombe, which was the only British ship captured during that campaign. When most of the French and Spanish fleet went into winter quarters in Brest and Cadiz in late 1779, Langara was tasked with maintaining the blockade against Gibraltar with nine ships of the line and two frigates. Now, the Spanish blockade was having its intended effect. By December 1779, six months after the siege began, the British Hanoverian force of over 5,000 soldiers at Gibraltar was running out of food and supplies. Britain would have to find a way to get supplies to the army or risk losing the siege on account of starvation. To break the siege, London deployed a fleet under the command of Admiral George Bridges Rodney. Rodney came from a minor aristocratic family. His father, however, had made some bad investments, leaving the family impoverished. Although his father had served as an army officer, Rodney entered the Navy at age 14, where he could advance through the ranks without having to purchase commissions. Through a combination of capable service and the patronage of an influential relative, the Duke of Chandos, Rodney commanded the 60-gun Eagle by the time he was in his early 20s. This was not the same Eagle that Lord Howe would have as his flagship during the American Revolution. It was an earlier ship with the same name. During the War of Austrian Succession, Rodney distinguished himself. He even managed to make some money capturing some valuable enemy ships. By the time the Seven Years' War began, Rodney was a Commodore. He carried Major General Jeffrey Amherst to America and participated in the successful siege of Lewisburg. He received promotion to Admiral and played a key role in the capture of Martinique, Grenada, and St. Lucia 
near the end of the Seven Years' War. Following the war, the king granted him a baronetcy. He got married and settled onto a large estate. He won election to parliament, and life must have seemed good. Unfortunately, the cost of running for parliament and the lifestyle costs of a gentleman ended up bankrupting the admiral. He hoped to secure an appointment as governor of Jamaica, but failing that, Rodney had to flee to France in order to avoid his creditors. Just after France declared war with Britain in 1778, Rodney convinced a friend to lend him enough money to repay his creditors and return to Britain. By this time, he was an Admiral of the White. In December 1779, Rodney received orders to take command in the West Indies. Before sailing there, however, he received secret orders to break the siege of Gibraltar by escorting a fleet of supply ships. Rodney set out for Gibraltar with 19 ships of the line in early January 1780. Only a few days later, his fleet spotted the enemy. It turned out to be a Spanish supply fleet, defended only by one ship of the line. The British managed to capture the entire fleet, including the Spanish ship of the line, the Gipuzkoana. Rodney renamed the ship Prince William after the king's third son, who was serving as a midshipman with his fleet. Following the capture of the Spanish supply fleet, Spanish officials got word of the British fleet that was headed for Gibraltar. They deployed two different fleets to intercept, one under Admiral Luis de Cordoba and another under Admiral Langara. Now, you may ask yourself, why did I go through all the trouble of giving a background on Langara, but not bother to give a background on Cordoba? Well, the reason is that Cordoba, once he learned of the size of the British fleet, turned around and went right back to Cadiz. He did not even try to contest the attack. Langara, however, did not receive word about just how large a fleet he was facing, and he sailed his nine ships of the line westward, looking to do battle with the British relief fleet. Just looking at the numerical difference, nine Spanish ships of the line against 19 British ships should give you an immediate idea of just how lopsided this battle was. But the differences were even more stark than that. Most of the British ships of the line were far larger than the Spanish ships and had more guns. The Spanish fleet was also much slower. Spain had done a poor job of keeping up the hulls on their ships, leading to rot and other problems that greatly slowed down the ship's speed. A French admiral had noted during the failed attempt to move the combined French-Spanish armada against Britain earlier that year that the fastest Spanish ships in the fleet were slower than the slowest French ships. By contrast, the British ships had copper sheathing underneath, which made their ships even faster. So the British have twice as many ships, much more firepower per ship, and a much faster fleet. Admiral Langara did not know any of this. He only knew that a British fleet was advancing on his position and that he had orders to intercept it. On January 16th, the two fleets spotted each other in the early afternoon. They were just off the southern coast of Portugal, near Cape St. Vincent. The British Admiral, Rodney, was sick with gout at the time and remained in his cabin during the entire action. He gave advice from his bed, but his flag captain, Walter Young, commanded the ship on deck. After the British and Spanish fleets confirmed sight of the enemy, 
both sides began to form a line of battle. Quickly, though, the Spanish realized just how outnumbered they were. Langara ordered his ships to turn around and make a run for it back to Cadiz. The British at first hesitated to give chase, but after determining that the smaller Spanish fleet was not trying to lead them into a trap, they pursued the fleeing Spanish. Because the British ships were much faster, they caught up with the enemy in only about two hours. By 4 p.m., the three fastest British ships, the Edgar, Marlborough, and Ajax, opened fire on the slowest Spanish ship, the Santo Domingo. It took them only about 40 minutes before they hit the powder magazine and blew up the ship, killing everyone on board, except for one crewman who managed to survive being blown into the water. The Marlborough and Ajax then sped off in pursuit of other Spanish prizes. The next slowest Spanish ship was the Princesa, who they bypassed in order to get to some of the faster ships. The British captains calculated, correctly, that other British ships would catch up and take the Princesa. Soon, the Bedford caught up and engaged, forcing the Princesa to strike her colors after about an hour of fighting. By this time, it was getting close to dusk. The British officers had to decide whether to call off the attack, in which case the remainder of the Spanish fleet would probably slip away, or whether they wanted to risk continuing the attack into the night. A nighttime battle carried more risks of being caught out of position or misidentifying an Allied ship and engaging in friendly fire. In the end, though, the British thought that the risk was worth continuing the pursuit. A few hours later, several British ships caught up with the Phoenix, the Spanish flagship carrying Admiral Langara. During the ensuing firefight, Langara was wounded. More British ships arrived to pile on the attack. After the Bienfaisant shot off the Phoenix's mainmast, the Spanish flagship struck her colors and surrendered at around 2 a.m. on the morning of January 17th. Normally in such a situation, the British would send over a prize crew and take control of the ship. However, the Bienfaisant had a raging smallpox epidemic aboard ship. The British captain informed the Spanish of this case and told them that rather than sending over a prize crew that might affect the Spanish, he would allow them parole to continue sailing their own ship. In doing so, they had to agree to remain with the British fleet cease all hostile actions, and follow them back to a British port. Rather than risk smallpox infection by the prize crew, the Spanish agreed to these terms. Over the course of the rest of the night, the British ships found an attack the Del Gente, the San Eugenio, and the San Julian. After midnight, the British 80-gun ship, the Alcides, caught up with the 74-gun Spanish Menorca. Although a little smaller, the Menorca managed to get in a fortunate shot which toppled the Alcides mainmast. By that time, though, the smaller 32-gun British frigate Apollo had also entered the battle. While probably too small to capture the Menorca on its own, it managed to keep the Spanish ship engaged until the 80-gun flagship Sandwich, sailing toward the sound of cannon fire, arrived on the scene around 2 a.m. and forced the Menorca's surrender. By dawn, the British had managed to capture six of the nine Spanish ships of the line. The remainder of the fleet managed to make it back to Cadiz. Even so, the British were not in the clear yet. 
prize crews aboard several of the damaged Spanish ships were close to the shore with a strong breeze blowing them toward the land. The British gave up on one of the badly damaged ships, the San Julian, and by late morning they grounded the ship on the shore and abandoned her. The captured San Eugenio faced a similar fate. According to British accounts, they grounded the ship around noon. However, the ship was not so damaged that the Spanish were able to recover the ship later and return it to service. Spanish sources tell a different story, saying that the Spanish crew overwhelmed the British prize crew and retook control of the ship. The victorious British convoy continued on to Gibraltar with the supply ships. They chased away a few smaller Spanish ships guarding the coast near Gibraltar. Now, even without any naval opposition, entry into Gibraltar was difficult. Gale force winds battered the already battle-damaged ships trying to make their way into Gibraltar while avoiding Spanish coastal artillery. Now, most of the fleet arrived at Gibraltar on January 19th, two days after the battle, although Rodney's flagship, the Sandwich, made a stop in Tangiers before arriving on the 26th. The supply ships saved the garrison at Gibraltar from starvation. The additional food, munitions, and over a thousand reinforcements would secure the fortress for at least another year. During the relief, Spanish Admiral Cordoba still had 24 French and Spanish ships of the line under his command at Cadiz. He could have pursued this smaller and damaged British fleet, but for reasons I don't fully understand, he remained in port. The result was a great victory for Britain. The Spanish lost over 2,500 men killed, wounded, or captured, while the British suffered only 32 killed and 102 wounded. The British leadership celebrated news of the lopsided naval victory, and Admiral Rodney became the toast of London. Both Houses of Parliament passed resolutions thanking the Admiral for his service. Admirals Lord Howe and Keppel honored him in public speeches. The Ministry offered a more tangible thanks in the form of a lifetime pension of 2,000 guineas. Although Rodney remained at sea, eight months later, voters in Westminster elected him to the House of Commons by the highest popular vote of that year's election. Two years later, after returning to Britain, Rodney would also receive the title of Baron. The success of the fleet's increased speed due to the use of copper sheathing also led the Navy to make greater use of that technology on more Navy ships. The technology had been around for decades, but officials had been uncertain that the improvements justified the cost. The success at Cape Vincent convinced everyone of its value. Meanwhile, Rodney remained with his fleet at Gibraltar, as they completed the repairs on their ships. Once ready, the fleet sailed straight for the West Indies, as originally planned, and we'll pick up those exploits in a future episode. The captured Spanish Admiral Langara would receive parole and would return to duty in Spain rather quickly. He received no blame for the loss, given that he was badly outgunned. Rather, he was praised for his efforts in engaging the superior force, he would continue in service with a new ship. After the war, he would eventually become Captain General of the Spanish fleet and later serve as Minister of the Navy. His captured Spanish flagship, the Phoenix, was renamed the Gibraltar and entered British service. The newly renamed 80-gun ship of the line 
would sail to Plymouth to be completely refitted and would remain in service for more than half a century, seeing extensive service throughout the Napoleonic Wars. Admiral Cordoba, who avoided battle entirely, did not seem to suffer any backlash as a result. Instead, a few weeks after the battle, the king appointed the 73-year-old admiral the director general of the Spanish Navy. This appears to be one of those battles where everyone gets a participation trophy. The naval battle at Cape St. Vincent, sometimes called the Midnight Battle, since most of it was fought over the course of the night. It gave the British a much-needed decisive naval victory, which helped morale in London. It also provided much-needed relief to Gibraltar, which was stocked up to continue resisting the Spanish siege. Next week, the British face a new challenge in the League of Armed Neutrals and also launch an attack in Central America against Spanish forces there. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, Trey Nance, George Davis, and Mike Hager, and to Robert Morris Circle supporter, Knox Press. You can go to knoxpress.com for details about newly released and upcoming releases of books. But I also wanted to mention that you can check out historyauthortalks.com for free live online presentations by authors. It's another great source of free quality content about the American Revolution. If you want to help me cover the costs of this podcast, you can make a donation to Patreon for as little as $2 per month. Just go to patreon.com, search for American Revolution Podcast, and make a pledge. Every little bit really does help. If you don't like making ongoing commitments, you can also make a one-time gift via PayPal, Venmo, or a few other options, all of which are available on my website at www.amrevpodcast.com. So, last weekend, I had a great time at the Conference of the American Revolution in Williamsburg, Virginia. It was a great chance to connect with some amazing historians and also a few fans of this podcast. I actually learned quite a bit. The next live event that's up for me is in Quakertown, Pennsylvania. Nathan's Papers is holding an Authors of the American Revolution Congress from noon to 5 on April 23rd. The theme of this year's Congress is Revolutionary Storytelling, 
Reading Beyond the History Books. I'm actually going to do a presentation there discussing how podcasting makes a great medium for history. Also appearing at the event are Christian McBurney and David O. Stewart, both of whom have appeared as guests on this podcast. Also, Selena Baker, Lars Hedbor, Kirsten Marshall, Bruce Maladay, and Samantha Wilcoxon. I'm going to be hanging around all afternoon at the event, happy to talk to anyone who cares to show up and speak with me. The event is free, but you do have to register. Go to nathanspapers.com and click on events for more details. I hope to see some of you there. Also coming up is the American Revolution Conference in upstate New York, which is run by the Fort Plain Museum. That's coming on June 9th to 12th. I had a great time at the event last year, and I do hope to make it again this year, although I haven't bought my tickets yet. As long as we're talking about live events, I'm hearing rumors that History Camp Boston may go live again in August. There still has been no formal announcement, but things are looking hopeful. If you want more details and links to these and other events, please sign up for my mailing list. It's the best way for me to provide details and links. I'm no longer sending out weekly emails. It's more like monthly now, so don't worry about your inbox being overwhelmed. If you do want to sign up, there are links to do so on my website and blog. You can go to blog.amrevpodcast.com, and I include links to sign up at the bottom of each episode. This week, I discuss the naval battle that allowed Britain to retain control of Gibraltar. The siege of Gibraltar would continue until the end of the war. Although the Spanish wanted the return of Gibraltar above all else, they would not get it back. France, which promised to stay in the war until Gibraltar returned to Spain, backed out of that deal. The final agreement which ended the war turned over the Floridas and Menorca to Spain, but Britain kept Gibraltar and continues to hold it to this day, a fact which still annoys many Spaniards. If you want to read more about the Siege of Gibraltar, my book recommendation this week is Gibraltar, The Greatest Siege in British History by Roy and Leslie Adkins. It's a pretty thorough recounting of the events that took place over the four-year siege. Some have criticized the book for being a bit tedious, but I guess when you spend 480 pages covering a four-year event that mostly consisted of two armies sitting and staring at each other, while one waited for the other to get hungry and quit, the action scenes may be a bit too few and far between for some. But I think the book does a great job of covering contemporary accounts and providing details on the struggle. The authors, Roy and Leslie Adkins, are a couple who are British historians and have written numerous books on various events related to British history. So, if you want to get to know more about this event, the book... Gibraltar, The Greatest Siege in British History, is a good one. My online recommendation covers the same siege, but in a shorter book and written much earlier. The book is called A History of the Siege of Gibraltar, 1779-1783, by John Drinkwater. It was first published in 1861 and is available as a free ebook on archive.org. It's only 172 pages, but I think it gives a pretty good account of the siege. As always, I've included links to both recommendations on my blog and website. 
If you visited my blog, you also know that I include numerous other books and online resources if you want to learn about the week's topic. Go to blog.amrevpodcast.com for more details. And if you have trouble remembering that address, if you just type in American Revolution Podcast blog into Google, you'll find it right away. My question this week asks, in American culture and popular consciousness, the 1773 Boston Tea Party has been immortalized, but the similar Gatsby affair from a year prior is relatively obscure. What led to this difference in remembrance between the two events? Well, as we approach the 250th anniversary of the Gatsby, I suppose this is a good time to ask and answer this question. In both cases, the colonists rose up and engaged in destruction of property. The Tea Party became well-known in history, while the Gatsby is largely forgotten. In many ways, the Gatsby affair was worse than the Tea Party. For those of you unfamiliar, go back and listen to episodes 36 and 40. But for the short answer, the Gatsby was a small British naval vessel attacked by Rhode Island colonists in 1772. The Rhode Island colonists attacked the ship after it got stuck on a sandbar. They were unhappy with the aggressive tactics it was using to seize suspected smugglers. They shot the captain and burned the ship. By comparison, the Tea Party was an attack on private property, not government property, and no government officials nor anyone else was hurt, other than, I guess, a protester who accidentally knocked himself out during the unloading of the tea. So why did London do almost nothing over the Gatsby affair while it brought down the hammer following the Tea Party? There are probably several reasons why the Gaspé incident received far less of a response from London. One was that the governor of Rhode Island, who was elected, did not raise a fuss himself. Rather, he tried to shut down the criminal investigations and move the matter to a quiet conclusion. Another reason was that Rhode Island was not the center of protests and problems. That was clearly Boston, which had law and order problems going back for nearly a decade. Officials decided it was best to let the Gaspé incident fade away. The Boston Tea Party, which occurred about a year and a half later, received a very different response. Officials in London knew that Boston had been the center of colonial resistance Royal governors had been complaining for years that they could not control the mobs and maintain law and order. The tea ships that were attacked were part of a major government initiative which was designed to stabilize the East India Company. The company's profits were a major revenue source for the British government and the source of investment income for a great many members of Parliament. After the destruction of the tea, officials in Boston strongly urged London to respond in a powerful way. The response in London, therefore, was that it was time to make an example of the most troublesome colony. So while the Gatsby affair was swept under the rug after a few months of fruitless investigation, the Tea Party led directly to Parliament's passage of the Coercive Acts, also known as the Intolerable Acts. The colonial leaders found those acts both coercive and intolerable, London's draconian response led to the meeting of the First Continental Congress and to the people of Massachusetts taking up arms to resist implementation of those laws. So, the Tea Party is remembered more than the Gatsby Affair because it 
led directly to laws that in turn directly led to the outbreak of war between Britain and its colonies. If you have a question you would like me to answer, please reach out to me on social media or send me an email. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.